Our text today is found in the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, especially the latter part of verse 1. Separated unto the gospel of God. Knowing how to prevent, to present your credentials in any given situation is a very important part of public speaking and even written communication. And so people like to know who is talking to them. People like to know what expertise uh, they have and, and why they want to engage with them. And that is why in the writings of all of Paul, when at the start of all these wonderful epistles, he presents his credentials right at the front of the, of the book or of the letter. And none more so than his letter to uh, the, the Christians at Rome. So he says that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. He is called to be an apostle. And he's separated unto the gospel of God. We've looked at these designations before, but the Lord brought my uh, mind back to them in the past week because I had to speak to the students in college about this great subject of ecclesiastical separation. Ecclesiastical separation at home, but also on the mission field. Paul said he was God's servant. And you know that as a great lesson before we start off, isn't it? That we're servants. We're not here to be served, but we are here to serve. And none of us should think it beneath us to do anything for the Saviour. Because the Saviour went to death for you and I. Let's not imagine for one moment that we're better than somebody else. And that's somebody else's job and somebody else can do that job. That's not for me to do. Were servants. He also outlined that he was an apostle. That just simply means he was sent. Now there are no apostles on earth today. They're all in glory. They're all around the throne. And they all surround the Lamb. And they serve God in glory. But God still has his sent ones. And we're the sent ones. We're sent into this world. We're sent into this uh, community of Analong to stand for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also designated something very interesting as he introduced himself to the church at Rome. He said he was separated unto the gospel of God. Separated unto the gospel of God. As a church over the years, in near 75 years now, we've used this designation time and time again to say what we are. We're, we're a separated church. But now there's a whole generation. Growing up in the free church. And they never had to separate from anything. I asked all of the students in, in the Whitfield. In the past week. How many of them had to separate from anything? Not one of them. And that has of course nothing to do with them. Because some of them are third, fourth generation families. In the Free Presbyterian Church. So what does it mean. To be a separated Christian. In the context of which we live in today. I want to address myself to the young. 
But I want also to speak to the older ones who have forgotten what separation is. And I pray that the Lord will bless it to your heart and bless it to your life. I want you to notice firstly, in order to be separated unto the gospel, there has to be this personal application of it. It all starts in here. It starts here in, here in the heart. This word, which is translated separated unto, it means to mark out by fixed limits or boundaries. Boundaries, for example, that are around the field. It denotes a separated a part of, of, of individuals, a separated a number of individuals from the common mass of lost humanity. And this word that it conveys to us the thought of the horizon. And Paul could see he was separated. And on the horizon he was separated onto the gospel of God. All his boundaries in life were determined by Christ. And sometimes today, even with older Christians, they want to get as close to the boundary as possible. But remember, our boundary in the world is Christ. And we can't go any further than Christ would allow us to go. And so when people say to you, well, there's really no harm in it. You have to look at, uh, look at everything in the context of Christ and his law and his gospel. Our boundaries are set by him, not by us. Paul was separated before his conversion. Long before his conversion in Galatians 1 and verse 15. In the womb. Here was this great decree of God's elective purposes. God separated this man unto himself away back in eternity. He put his name upon him. He put his love upon him. And in the fullness of time he called him unto himself. I want every Christian to comprehend and understand that great truth today. He was separated by Christ at his conversion. You read again the three times he tells his testimony in the book of Acts. And on every occasion that he shares his testimony, he shares how God spoke to him. There were others all round about him, but God just spoke to him of that company that went from Jerusalem up to Damascus to persecute the Christians. God just spoke to him and separated him unto himself. And then he was separated by the Holy Spirit after his conversion. In that great call of God that the Lord gave to him to be a missionary, the Holy Spirit spake to him and to the church and called him in Acts 13 to be an ambassador for Christ. God marked him out. God marked him out from the womb. To the work, to the grave, for what the Lord had him to do. And that's what God is still doing today. That's the work of God, the Holy Spirit today. He's separating people from everything that is outside of those fixed boundaries. So he brings us within the boundaries. And this is a very uh, exclusive relationship. We're separated unto Jesus Christ. It's not a denomination that I'm separated unto. And I want you to get that. It's not the free Presbyterian flag or banner that I'm separated unto. I'm separated unto Jesus Christ and unto his gospel. What a difference that makes in all of our lives. And it will not matter. I have to add this in. It will not matter what church you worship in. 
And it will not matter even if you say I worship in a church that is not part of the ecumenical movement. We'll come to that in a second. If your relationship with Christ is not right. And I want you to search your own heart today. Has grace separated you unto Jesus Christ? That's the key point. Before we get to any other points, that's the key point. That is the key point. You can go to hell from those pews. Would not be an awful tragedy. Personal separation. It doesn't mean isolationism. Or monasticism. Remember how Saul of Tarsus, he was once a Pharisee. They were the true separated ones. The religious elite in Israel. He was unorthodox. He wouldn't mix with the unorthodox. Even the unorthodox Jews. His separation was characterized by legalism. Even for a Pharisee too. Even of his garments brushed with somebody else's garments. In the, in the tight streets of Jerusalem or in the busy streets. They would have been defiled. And those Pharisees they added on to the law. They added on to the law. You know, the answer to those who despise the law of God is not to do away with the law of God, but it is to keep within the boundaries of the law of God. Not to allow others to add burdens upon you that are not within the law of God. How many laws did the Pharisees add on to the law of God? Hundreds. Hundreds. And they had a religious manual that if you didn't tick this box and that box, you weren't a holy person. You cannot do that, brethren and sisters. We, we, we do not believe separation is isolationism. And oftentimes I think free Presbyterians have given that uh, impression. And they like to take pot shots at others who are not free Presbyterians. Well, I have never done that. And I'm not going to start to do it today. Separation is not isolation. And I don't have to isolate myself from other Christians who take a similar stand to me, though they be not free Presbyterians. If heaven is only made up of free Presbyterians, it's going to be a very small quarter indeed. We don't believe in monasticism either. In the early centuries of the New Testament church, there were those who genuinely sought to escape the corruptions of this world. <clears throat> During the summer, I read the life of Augustine, a great man. The Roman Catholics claim him, the Protestants claim him, but he was a man set apart, and he established a religious community because he wanted to get away from the corruptions of the world in which he lived in. But you know, the, those early uh, societies that, he founded, and others like him founded, they were only paving the way for the medieval equivalent of the popish monastic system that was more corrupted than anything that was in the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, I, I wrote unto you in, a, in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So what's your company? Haven't we been saying that for, uh, all along, watch your company, young person, watch your company. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. The, these verses, 
they seem paradoxical. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he told them not to keep company with those who were fornicators. But what he was referring to in verse 9 were those who professed to be Christians but who indulged in open sexual sin. Don't keep company with them. But he said on the other hand you can't avoid the fornicators in the world. You can't avoid mixing with people who indulge in sexual sin in the world. You have to trade with them. You have to live beside them. You have to do business with them. You have to interact with them. For he said, the only alternative is that you must needs go out of the world. And that's not an alternative because we can't leave this world. We're in this world. So personal separation does not mean that we don't live in the world we don't labor in the world we don't mix in the world but it means rather that our lives are not to be tainted by the sinful standards of the world if it's outside those gospel parameters if it's outside those 10 laws of holiness that god has given to us the law of god exodus chapter 20 then they're outside of our parameters are outside of our reach so there's personal separation but I want to major uh, today on the ecclesiastical dimension to that separation. The founding fathers of free Presbyterianism, they believed that the gospel could only flourish if men were faithful outside of the great apostasy of their day and of their generation. And where did they see that apostasy? They saw it within the body of the World Council of Churches. And all of its associated uh, councils. They saw the false ecumenism. Of the world council of churches. Which at that time. All the main uh, line denominations. Uh, in our Protestant denominations in our land. Were in membership of. They saw it as a reversal of the Protestant Reformation. And so it was. And so it is. So in the 1950s. The 1960s. The 1970s. There was a move of God across this little land of ours. And there were many Christians who left those mainstream denominations. And they separated. And many of them did come into membership in the Free Presbyterian Church. They believed that saved men and unsaved men could not share a mutual ministry. Is that still not the same principle today? Was that not the principle that Dr. Uh, Henry Cook outlined in his great battle with the Aryans. He said, if you can show me from scripture how uh, I can go to the ordination of an Aryan, then I'll, I'll give up my stance. And it's just the same today. Can an evangelical minister go to the ordination of someone he knows is not a gospel preaching minister? Perhaps not even a saved man or, as in many of those denominations today, a saved woman. They believed that it was wrong to set men apart for the historic Christian faith who had imbibed liberalism. They believed that evangelicals and, and ecumenists could not work together either at home or on the foreign mission fields. And that was why just nearly 50 years ago our own denomination established its own mission board. We can't have separation at home and then uh, something else abroad. So as a church, 
Where do we stand on this issue of, of biblical separation? And I want to caveat it all. It's biblical separation. It's, it's not some sort of uh, isolationism, taking pot shots at everybody else that doesn't agree with it. It's biblical separation. There, there are even various men in churches across our land and mainstream denominations across our land, and they are... They are seeking to take a stand for truth in their own uh, particular environment. And, and I recognize, I recognize their sincerity. I recognize their salvation. But I would encourage them to separate from theological error and compromise. That's where I am. That's, that's the reason where I am today in our own Free Presbyterian Church. In, in the final chapters of the book of Romans, he's starting off with separation. What does he say in Romans 16 about separation? The same thing. He said, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. He didn't say mix with them. He didn't say share presbyteries with them. He didn't say share sessions with them. He said just avoid them. Don't have anything to do with them. What, what a caution this is. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Romans chapter 16. And everything that's in between. It is dominated by this great truth. Where he opened up. Where he said he was separated unto the gospel of God. Those who introduced doctrine that's contrary to the apostolic doctrine that had already been preached. He said just avoid them. Because they're opening up doors to other offences and other divisions. Because if truth is deserted, what happens? Error will come in. People never live in a void. And where the church in the previous generations has left evangelical truth and orthodoxy, then liberalism and heterodoxy has come in and has taken over. We don't live in a void. Mark those who cause divisions and avoid them. Uh, to me, that's pretty clear. Some think that he was especially warning to take heed of the Judaizing teachers who within the church under the cover of a Christian name kept up those uh, mosaical ceremonies and, and preached the necessity of them and said to the Gentile converts, you can't be a Christian unless you're circumcised. That's what we're reading about today in Romans chapter 4. We have to battle, the, the Christian ministry is a battle from, from the morning to the evening because we're battling those that would dispense with the law. We're battling those that would add on to the law. We're battling legalism. Legalism will be the death nail of the church. We want to keep a law-free gospel proclaimed from our pulpits. Some of the questions Put to every minister and elder ordained by our presbytery. Focuses upon the necessity of being prepared to maintain that separated stance of our denomination. And I'll just remind them. I'll remind you of them again today. Will you maintain with all the strength God shall give you the position of biblical separation from Apostasy is taken by the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster in 1951 at the time of its uh, 
secession from the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. <clears throat> As God helps you, will you expose and resist the continued apostasy from Christ manifested within uh, Irish Presbyterianism, Methodism, Episcopalianism and other uh, visible church bodies exhorting God's people to obeying the teaching and the commandment of 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5. Now, to answer in the affirmative, it's not just merely a matter of course. It has to be a matter of conscience. In conscience, do you believe you ought to be separated outside the great ecumenical movement? This stand has led the church into all types of spiritual battles. At home and abroad, as it has sought to oppose the liberal theology of the World Council of Churches, the Roman, Romanizing tendency of the, Rome, uh, of the Roman Church uh, and its infiltration of the World Council of Churches and all that goes with it. I'd encourage you to do some little research on your own on the history of the modern ecumenical movement. What really struck me as I looked on this in the past few weeks is that its roots go back to the mission field. That's a warning, isn't it? Its roots go back to the mission field in the 19th century. In those mid-1800s, remember, there was a great rise of missionary activity. We thought of John Payton in the Bible study just a few weeks ago. What a great man of God he was. But there were many others at that particular time. And there were hundreds of Christians who were sent out from mainline denominations and they went out with the gospel. They were not compromising the truth, but they went out with the gospel. But there was a various international missionary conferences which brought together those various missionaries from uh, different denominations. And the great clarion call was they needed to unite for the cause of missionary endeavour. And so toward the end of the 19th century, there was also a, a, a rise in the seminaries of the churches of liberalism and as liberalism gained and increased well then the leaders of the unity movements which covered Europe and America and Australia they were tainted also with this liberal theology let me give you some examples 1895 the World Student Christian Federation founded by John R. Moot from the US of A he did much to advance this unity idea, or as it was later called, ecumenism, throughout the world. Let me give you some of these names. J.H. Uh, Oldham, Nathan uh, Soderblom, uh, and William Temple. They, they, were all, they were all the father figures of the modern ecumenical movement. And in 1900, we hear for the first time this word ecumenical. So no longer... Did you come from this distinct denomination, be it Presbyterian, Baptist, or Anglican, or Methodist, or whatever it was? But now we will join together in ecumenical endeavour. And the term is just simply derived from a Greek word meaning the inhabited world or humankind. So under this umbrella organisation of ecumenism, we're going to bring together a humanity or humankind. In 1910, there was a very famous World Missionary Conference held in Edinburgh. And it was really the turning point. It was the birthplace of what we know today as the modern ecumenical movement. And what was its theme? Not union with Rome. 
Its theme was the evangelization of the world in this generation. Now, all of us would tick the box, wouldn't we? We would all agree that we need to evangelize the world and we need to reach the world and we need to stir ourselves up to do the work of evangelism. There were 1,200 delegates and they were chosen by various missionary societies. And it is said of that conference that there was a very deep sense of unity. And from that conference, uh, there were those who went on to become the leaders of the ecumenical movement in the years that lay ahead. The goal, of course, was the evangelization of the world in one generation. And at that time, there was no link seen between Christianity and the non-Christian religions. Men were utterly without Christ. This started off on a good footing. And for the majority of the delegates, the substance of the gospel was very clear. But the liberal tone was also present. A little leaven, the Bible says, will soon uh, leaveneth the whole lump. So at, at Edinburgh, no, two notable points appeared. First, an understanding and a sympathy for the nobler elements in the non-Christian religions. That was significant. And then secondly, a compromising of the universal and emphatic witness to the absoluteness of the Christian faith. And so what became clear thereafter in missionary work was known as charity and tolerance. Now we should be charitable and we should be tolerant. But we cannot be tolerant of error. And we cannot be charitable to those who would seek to do despite to the gospel of Christ. So to some the change seemed slight and unimportant. But the results, the results brethren and sisters became very apparent in the decades that followed. So historians have listed some of those results. One, I'll just list them to you for sake of time. There was the omission of theological questions. Ecumenical people don't like to discuss theological issues. Why? Because it might divide them. And so what's their answer is? Let's not discuss it. So doctrine and theological differences were set aside. And that is not still the attitude to this present day that we live in. Let's not talk about the things that divide us, even though they might be fundamental and foundational, but let's just talk about the things that unite us. Organization replaced scripture. Organization and administration were seen as the instrument of the Holy Spirit. And of course, liberalism and the social gospel has destroyed the confidence in the Bible uh, amongst many of the missionary leadership. They minimised also the need for foreign mission activity. And, and Edinburgh gave the impression that there were Christian lands not in need of missionary activity. So they said the Christian populations of South America and Europe, for example, were, cons were not considered subject for foreign missions. Why? Because South America and Europe were dominated by the Church of Rome. Don't be going there. Well, we thank God there were those who did go. And we thank God, especially in South America, they broke the stranglehold of Romanism on a continent. Evangelization was replaced by unity. Now remember 1910, that great motto that was the, the, 
that missionary conference's objective, the evangelization of the world in one decade. They became to, afterwards, they, they began to equate the work of evangelism with the spirit of church unity. So what, what was more important? Well, what became more important, instead of people getting the gospel, it was getting people to unite one with the other. Weaknesses became very evident. At Edinburgh, at Edinburgh, biblical strengths were corrupted. Doctrine, wherever you find doctrine is diluted, weakness will always come in afterwards because doctrine is the, is the frame that puts, put it all together. Take away the skeleton form, everything else will, will soon collapse. So today in our own generation, what happens? Well, there are many ecumenical meetings all across this land. They happen locally. They, they happen at the national level. They happen at provincial level. And do you think they're coming together to discuss doctrine? No, not a bit. They're coming together to discuss how they can unite, how they can work together. And doctrine is set aside. It's very evident. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland is no longer, thankfully, a member of the World Council of Churches. I remember as a young Christian that great battle. The various members of the World Council of Churches were contributing from their funds, funds to organisations that we here would have deemed to be terrorist organisations. And so the PCI, under pressure, did withdraw. And we set a marker and we say thank God for that. But they continued with all of the other ecumenical bodies. They didn't leave them. They, they continued in them. It was interesting to read just a few weeks ago. And at the end of September. Of Catholic and Protestant leaders from Ireland. Travelling to Rome. To mark the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And they went for an ecumenical prayer service in the Vatican, of all places. And they went to reflect upon the peace deal that was signed in Belfast in 1998. Who, who went? Well, amongst those who went was Archbishop Eamond Martin, the head of the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland. He was joined by Dr. Sam Mahwini, the Presbyterian moderator of the General Assembly. I was very interested to, to discover that that seminar was arranged by the British and Irish ambassadors to the Holy See. Politicians always want to use churches to advance their own causes. And the other clergy attended included uh, the, the Church of Ireland Archbishop, John McDowell, the President of the Methodist Church in Ireland, the Reverend David Turtle, and Bishop Andrew Forster, President of the Irish Council of Churches. You go onto the internet and look at all of the members of the Irish Council of, of Churches, and it will surprise you of all the ones that are members of that grouping. And the event was presented as to be an inspiration for other church and faith-based leaders as they work for peace and reconciliation around the world. Well, well, Dr. McWhinney, let's just reverse up a little minute. Signed the Confession of Faith. The same Confession of Faith 
that we subscribe to. And that confession of faith clearly has a doctrinal bar on Protestants participating in worship uh, services with the priests of Rome. What does it say? We'll not go through every chapter, but let me highlight some of them for you. Because we've forgotten about this. I, I always encourage you, read the confession. Know what your own doctrinal statement of faith actually says and stand by it. Uh, when it talks in chapter 22 about lawful oaths and vows. It talks then in which respects popish monastical vows of perpetual single life and professed poverty and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. I am 100% sure that Dr. McWinney didn't discuss that chapter with Eamon Martin. What does it say about marriage and divorce in chapter 24? Such as profess the true reformed religion should not marry infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as uh, are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. It's pretty clear, isn't it? What about the church? Well, we know that famous section in chapter 25, section 6, where it speaks about uh, the Pope of Rome cannot be the head of the church, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, that son of perdition, which exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. But you know, today within the PCI, that is a conscience clause. As you say it, you don't really have to believe it. Of the Lord's Supper, it says, of the Lord's Supper, in chapter 29, in this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of the sins of the quick of the dead, but only a commemoration of the one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once and for all, a spiritual and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. And then the application of it is, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the only propitiation for all the sins of his elect. The finished work of Christ, his once and for all sacrifice for sin, what does it do? It makes redundant every priest of the Church of Rome. It's a whole fraud from top to bottom. Do you think Dr. Mulwiney reminded the Pope of that and the cardinals that he met in the Vatican? The doctrine, section 6 says, which maintains a change of substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation by the consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant. Repugnant. Not to scripture alone, but even to common sense. And overthrows the nature of the sacrament and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yes, of gross idolatries. We have evangelicals within the PCI and they signed that. And I wouldn't doubt that they don't believe it. But they're happy to fellowship 
and worship in joint services with those who deny it. Now, where is the separation? There is none, because they've abandoned it long ago. Dr. Mulwiney was accompanied by the Archbishop John Medole of the Church of Ireland. And a few summers ago, I read a, Ian Murray's excellent book on the life story of Bishop Jesse Ryle. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to buy it and read it. It'll bless your soul. And what did Ryle say in his day? He fought that battle within Anglicanism in the 1800s against liberalism, against high Catholics. And, and what did he say about it? He said, let us have no peace with Rome until Rome abjures her errors and is at peace with Christ. Until Rome does that, the vaunted reunion of the Western churches which some talk of and press upon her notice is an insult to Christianity. So the great Bishop Braille, his summary of this whole ecumenical of the whole ecumenical movement, the whole embodiment of it in the World Council of Churches and all that is it expressed today. How did he summarize it? It's an insult to Christianity. I know all that I'm saying today is not popular. It's not popular with some free Presbyterians and they would prefer some other type of how to address it. It's certainly not popular outside the Free Presbyterian Church. As a young minister, I learned I don't have to be popular. I never was set out to be unpopular. In Carrickfergus, we, we just had a little church in the centre of the town. It was surrounded by massive uh, big churches that had been there for hundreds of years. Here we were meeting just with a few dozen and were surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of cars every Sunday going to all of these churches. I realised to be a free Presbyterian minister is a lonely pathway and a lonely road. But in conscience, I could not be in a church where the moderator of the presbytery would go to the Vatican for a prayer seminar where he would engage with the priests and the archbishops of Rome at will and where nobody says anything. You know, that's the thing that really I don't understand. How the saved evangelicals within the PCI are silent. They say nothing. A few years ago when the Pope came to Dublin, who met him on the tarmac? The Presbyterian of the, Gener the moderator of the General Assembly. On other occasions, if the moderator was an out-and-out -out evangelical, what did he do? Well, he just sent the clerk of the General Assembly. That would be like me saying here and on alone, I'm not going to that ecumenical meeting, but I'll send the clerk of session in my stead. It's just the same difference at local level. I do not believe this is what Paul meant when he said he was separated unto the gospel of God. I am not saying we have always got this separation issue right. I know we haven't. Sometimes it's been dealt with in, in a bad way. But I believe the principle of it is absolutely right. We set our marker here again. And on alone. 
with all of our wrinkles, with all of our spots, just like Paul of old, we're servants. We've been sent and we're separated onto the gospel.